Hello, Matt. Hello. How are you today? I'm very tired. Me too. That's a weird coincidence. <laughs> Why are you so tired, Matthew? Oh, we were up too late last night. We went to the Barrymore Awards at Bach. For those of you who don't live in Philly, the Barrymore Awards are theater awards. So it's kind of the Philadelphia equivalent of the Tony Awards, I guess. But scrappier. Because Philadelphia is a scrappier city and wilder and more inclusive of everyone. <laughs> yeah, this is the first time we've gone to any of these Barrymore Awards. Yeah, they got so inclusive they even included us. <laughs> <laughs> but my takeaway is that the Barrymore Awards really showed me that Philadelphia is kind of what like Fox News and conservatives think Hollywood is. What do you think mean? California is. Like... It's such this boisterous, feisty, supportive... Super progressive. like Incredibly progressive. Like uber liberal. <laughs> like, I love how weird everybody is here. And, and yes. how everybody likes being weird with each other. Yes. Yeah. It was incredible. My voice is really hoarse because we sat in the front row... And I was screaming my ass off for all of my friends. And I screamed a little bit too loud and blew my voice out a little bit, which is a bad practice for someone who uses their voice. Um, <laughs> but I screamed very loud for my friend, director Ozzy Jones, who actually wasn't nominated for anything, but he was presenting an award. But I just love him. So when he appeared <laughs> on the stage, I reacted like it was the Beatles or something. Not that I would even scream for the Beatles, but I'd scream for Ozzy Jones. And I screamed really <laughs> loud for Clarice Park, our research assistant, who was nominated in two categories for acting because they are just that multi-talented and amazing. Well, we were there in the first place because you got two nominations, actually. Um, yeah, for the first time. I've been working in this town for about a decade, and uh, I finally got some Barrymore nominations, which is... It's nice to be recognized at home after getting out and about. <laughs> well, like I said, the Barrymores have gotten a lot more inclusive in the last couple of years. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was kind of nice, and it was, you know, nice to be there for all our friends, and it was a really loving atmosphere and just a really good time. The award ceremony was really great. And afterwards, we all went up to the roof of this place, which is where the Bach Bar is. And it has this incredible, expansive view of the skyline. But more importantly, it was a great opportunity to see a lot of people who, you know, when you're in the arts, you don't really get so much time to hang out with uh, your friends who are also in the arts. True. And in amongst the mingling that we did with folks that we know, there were folks that we got to talk to that we only knew of, who knew of each other. I saw you having uh, splendid meetings with people like, oh, it's finally good to meet you. We, we, we keep crossing each other's paths online. Yeah. But, and we also actually spoke to somebody who uh, we were beginning our usual introduction about what we've been up to. And I think Melissa mentioned that, oh, we've got this podcast about... <laughs> theater and what was her name it I was, think it was Krista I'm, I'm so bad terrible with names, with names. I'm, I'm so worse. bad she jumps in and says actually I binged the whole thing <laughs> so and she called us local celebrities which is kind of <laughs> hilarious I actually really loved being recognized for this dinky podcast at the Barrymore Woods that was <laughs> 
actually fucking awesome. So shout out to you, Krista. You fucking made my night. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So in archaeology news this week, I turned my mind to researching glue. Um... (laughs) Because, because Aren't you glad you tuned in. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, because glue. Um, you know, the last time I glued together all of our artifacts from the other privies, I did mm-hmm. a little research on glue, but I don't think it was as thorough as I really should have been. You had um, a lot going on. Yeah, and well, and I do remember at that time looking into the glue that the Super Duper Museum experts use mm-hmm. and discovering that it was kind of a pain in the ass like you can't just buy it at home depot so now that i've gotten a little more of a handle on this archaeology shit i was like well maybe i should look into the super duper museum glue and figure out how to use this pain in the ass glue so i dove into glue research and i read a bunch of academic papers including this seminal paper which is by stephen p koob it's book backwards and it's called The Use of Paraloid B-72. That's what the glue is called, Paraloid B-72, because that sounds like something from that's, that's science. a fucking science fiction book, as an adhesive. It's application for archaeological ceramics and other materials. It's a giant paper that tells you why Paraloid B-72 is the best and uh, how to make it in your archaeology lab because it's kind of a process you have to buy these crystals and dissolve them in acetone and then add this silica thickener and then pour it into your own aluminum tubes but then once you've done all that you have this kick-ass glue that is really strong but can be reversed it's reversible yeah, yeah and doesn't damage anything so i kind of was like this is amazing i'm gonna buy this glue and i spent like a bunch of money buying all of the materials online which is probably going to put me on some kind of terrorist watch list because i'm like literally ordering from like labs (laughs) this is where your uh, mug purchases go to fund that's right buy a mug from the bug house and fund Melissa's purchase of professional grade adhesives for gluing together shirts. Well, um, while we were going over this, we actually made a, a weird discovery about this glue. Yeah, because I, I was reading the sort of fourth paragraph and it says B72 was designed by what I assumed was like the German version of 3M, uh, this company called Rim and Haas. I'm saying Rim because I took six months of German, but it's R-O with an umlaut, H-M. And I think that's Rim and Haas, H-A-A-S. And I said this out loud for some reason, and you were like, "Oh." oh. I know that, but I don't remember from where, but it's very prominent. I was like, oh, it must just be like some famous German company right i turned around and i just googled roman haas and duh the images that came up are of this building at sixth and market i guess it is yeah it's sixth and market in in philadelphia right there's a la cologne where we get our coffee well i was like wait a second they're a philly company or they just have a branch in philly and no, they're very definitely Philly. They're a Philly company? Oh, some Germans came to Philly. Oh, <laughs> but but then, and then where is this building exactly? Well, if you are in one of these upper floors of the Roman Haas building, you look down upon George Washington's house. As on- in the house that Jed Levin is about 
to describe in the second half of our interview with him. And just for an added dimension, they're this very actively philanthropic family. Right. So the Haas, the, the Haas half, the Haas half of Roman Haas, I guess, made a bunch of money in chemicals. And then that family now uses that money to support actually mostly theater, I think, although I'm sure it's other things as well. But there is a Barrymore Award called the F. Otto Haas Award for an emerging Philadelphia theater artist, which is one of the most prestigious awards. Like it's an award with a big fat cash prize. Yeah. Several of my most beloved theater friends have won this award. And the money for that award comes from... Sales of Paraloid B72 glue, <laughs> which I'm about to use to fucking glue shirts together. Shirts not too dissimilar from shirts that were found at the NCC dig, which Roman Haas building overlooks because, because this simulation is fucking breaking down and my life is a fever dream. Is any of this real? Are we even awake? Take a seat. You're in the bog house. We're going to jump straight back into our interview now with Jed Levin. In the last episode, you'll remember we left off with him describing how all of the bureaucracy and the funding came together finally to allow the dig of George Washington's slave quarters to take place. And this week, we're starting with his description of the very beginning of that dig across the road from the Roman Haas building here in Philadelphia. We plan to begin the dig in the early spring of 2007. The superintendent made me swear in a back uh, with, with blood, right, in blood, that I would be done well in advance of July 4th. Okay. Right. So big fuss, and that we could cover it over. I said, I can do it. I can do it. Uh-oh. Um, uh-huh. And he said, okay, fine. Uh-huh. Um, I insisted there be a platform, a public platform built before we dug so that the day we moved the first bit of soil, the public could watch because there was distrust of the Park Service, rightly so. Uh We wanted to have ultimate transparency. That threatened to hold it up, getting that done. And I said, I won't start until that happens. We got it done. We had an opening ceremony in which hundreds of people came, including many students from Philadelphia high schools, but also the the advocates who had fought for it. The mayor, the then mayor spoke. Well, before we we began, we knew he was going to take a ceremonial uh, shovelful to open it, and there would be a backhoe on site. Park said, "Well, let's. We need to put up a fence to keep, you know, people because there's a." And it's I a said, "We hole. can't put it. We can't put up a fence." Yeah. We. I mean, just symbolic. We can't. Yeah. These are yeah, the people who, the wrong. who demand this happen. <laughs> yeah. We can't have a fence between them, and fence so we're like, yeah. you know, we'll have two archaeologists on the crew hold caution tape stretched across the area to keep people back, and yeah. you know. That'll be enough without alienate those who made it happen. Yeah. Right, exactly. So that was all set up. A number of people spoke, and um, the mayor gets up on the backhoe. Now, this was actually not even a backhoe. It was a bigger machine, uh, you know, technically than a backhoe. You could 
move a lot of dirt really quick a with big that. So, dig a thing. Yes, yes. And so the mayor gets up there, and I'm like, mm. but we knew there was about seven to ten feet of fill, so it's like, he really couldn't. Wait, the mayor is operating Yes, the, the mayor is going to operate. Oh, my God. Like, Instead of the shovel in the right. dirt, he's hopped in. Yes, his, not, his, the, not a yeah. shovel, not a, but the, the bucket, <laughs> the, the shovel of the big mechanic. Go bigger, go home. That's, that's, right. Had he operated one of those machines? Yes, he had. So they told me, look, he, he'd been in the laborers union. Okay. He had been in construction. It'd been yeah. many years. Because I'm like, you can kill yourself driving one of those things if you don't know exactly. what you're doing. Exactly, and I'm worried about the site. You know, right. it's, like, it's pretty deep, but, you know, a crazy man who doesn't know what he's doing on one of those. But they see, you know. It's okay. And, okay. and then the operator gave him a quick tutorial. Pull this, pull that, you know. And so, you know, I was a little nervous, but he takes a gentle scrape, beautifully done, lifts it up, drops the soil, and I'm like, okay, everything's okay. <laughs> the minute that happens, the public breaks through the tape, surges through the tape. What? A hundred people go, you know, run right up to the dirt. And I'm like, Uh-oh. stunned and in heart failure. Luckily, that operator was great. And he immediately secured the machine, put the bucket down. And as we watched, people began to pick up dirt and pieces of, of brick and rock. And this couple took their baby and, and sat it on the dirt pile. That oh, my the, God. From the, you know, I took pictures. At least two people had took out plastic bags from their pocket and started taking dirt and little bits right, of rock. Right. Now there's this rule in national parks <laughs> yes. you don't remove anything. <laughs> and I'm watching this. And, and the then acting superintendent comes through the crowd, comes like, to me and she goes, uh, 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 did you, uh, I saw <laughs> and she said, boy, I said, look, nothing they're taking is of historic significance. This is all landfill and demolition rubble from the original mall right. um, from the 1950s. So I have no concerns. And she said, well, should we stop? I said, I'm not inclined to stop them. Sure. <laughs> and she said, I'm not either. No. So we, you know, yeah, we didn't. You, you let the rule go a right, little bit. exactly. Because obviously these people exactly. are connecting with yep. the with the land right. and with the soil and with the stories in the soil, so exactly. I imagine they're going to take this home, put it in a jar, and then exactly. tell Show their grandkids. Their and they said that they said that to me because I went up to a couple people just because I didn't want them. I said, you know, that brick it couldn't be from the president's house, right. and they just sort of looked at me like I was missing the point, which I was. Sure. And they said one of them literally said, "But it came from here." Yeah. Several years later, I did a a talk at one of the high, local high schools, and they had stuff from the you know from that was that in the classroom right. anyway yeah um it's that like, told us i mean if i had any doubt about this being a real project you know a really special you know extraordinarily special project in many ways right that cemented it yeah it also what we were talking about early the power of place mm-hmm. the way archaeology and physical remains can connect people to their past mm-hmm. in a way that almost nothing else can yeah this really shows that after that, you know, they, they began the excavations. Um, we had to go down, as I think I mentioned, about 7 to 10 feet before we knew we'd had, if, if, if there was anything left, it right. would be down that deep because you had those later 19th century basements, demolition rubble, and a park over it. Sure. We also had to build shoring with steel support, oh, you wow. know, driven piers all around it to allow us to dig that deep without caving the sidewalk. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, mm-hmm. we had to locate all of the utilities marked and unmarked support them or temporarily move them. So there was then, after the dig, this period where we just had to do all this in suspense. And I was, like, amazed and gratified throughout the whole process about the public's ownership of this project, but always a little concerned, what if we find nothing? 
Right. You know, I told myself what we always tell ourselves, you know, well, negative evidence is still evidence, but I know. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah sure. you know. <laughs> There's right. the psychological aspect. Right. Exactly. I, you know, and that's just to, not rewarding to yeah. say, well, it, you know, it's true. Not finding anything tells us something that it doesn't survive, but right. it's hardly right. rewarding. Right. Especially right. for people who fought desperately, uh-huh. you know. And we just didn't know. And there's a period of about a month when mm. we were doing all the heavy earth moving and putting in the shoring where people came every day, but uh, we could explain what we're doing, but there was nothing to show for right. it. No reason to know for sure there ever will be but then after a month we hit began to hit uh first the 19th century walls fairly early on and then as we got lower we hit things that clearly didn't map to where those 19th century walls were actually well what happened first is we got low enough to where the walls were and we hit a foundation wall that didn't exactly match it was a foundation for the kitchen extension that was in the back. Mm. We did not expect the kitchen to have a basement. Right. And there's no mention ever of basement, so we didn't know. But we had a foundation huh. that matched where it had to be. Right. And then based on where that was, we're like, well, if that's the corner of the kitchen, then the great big bay window that George Washington ordered built, added to the existing house to make it grander and more architecturally current. Mm-hmm. Well, that window, we could measure off where it would be. Right. At that point, that area was covered by a basement floor from those 19th century buildings. Right. So we're like, okay, measured out, dig here. Right. Yeah. And me and Doug Mooney took shovels. We're like, we measure it like here. X marks the spot with people watching. And we took the shovel and we dug nothing. I'm like, all right, okay. no fear, just a little hole. Sure. We, you know, we're measuring with take could be a foot. Let's move it a little bit. Doug again hit a stone foundation wall. Oh my gosh, um, that and, must have been so exciting. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> actually, that wasn't the well, window. That was the back of the house. Sure. Cause, um, because that would have been actually that. It was actually. I, I misremembered. We were actually looking for the back of the house. We knew about the bow window, but right. we were looking. We didn't think the bow window would go that deep. Right. Mm-hmm. So we were mm-hmm. actually looking for the back wall, which we knew um, the basement went all the way down. Yeah. So I misremembered that. No, 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 was, but it makes sense. Right. Like, yeah, and we makes- did. And so, yes, that's what it was. And the amazing thing is on that wall, like, uh, you know, I reached down right after we're saying, oh, yeah, there's <laughs> stone foundation, mortared stone foundation. And I reached down because I saw something. I pick up a penny. An 1832 penny. Get out. I have to say, this is a project where me and usually it was Doug Mooney because we worked on both these closely together in various capacities. We would get these chills. We'd like, oh, we just look at each other. Uh It's like it's happening again. Right. (laughs) That was one of them. Oh, yeah. Because we knew from the documents the president's house was torn down in 18, around 1831, 32, (laughs) and these new buildings were built there. Yeah. So what had happened is they came in. You know, you can imagine a workman in the basement, 1832, mm-hmm. getting ready to put the floor down, reaches in his pocket, takes out a penny, lays it down on the old foundation, puts the floor down. Uh, workmen do that. You know, look, maybe it, you know, it <laughs> fell out of his pocket right. by coincidence, but since I found it, I like to believe he left it I for mean, me right a there. A penny is worth a lot more back then than yeah. it is now, so. so you know, and it was placed. It was sitting right in the center of the foundation, yeah. and wow. it's an exact date. Yeah. So, you know, to us that, uh, first of all, we found what was undoubtedly the foundation wall of the main house. Yeah. We continued then to remove that basement floor, and there was another foundation piece that was just this amorphous, and we didn't realize that what it was at first, and then I kept looking at it because it was like, so what is that? Hmm. It's odd. And I began, and I said, let's, let's clean it up, like right along the edge. And there's a curve to it. 
I was like, <laughs> that's the foundation for the bow window. They built a full foundation for it down two story. Oh, wow. Or, well, down to uh, basement, basement level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From the first floor all the way down. Huh. You know? uh, I was like, Obviously, because they probably wanted to make a vault, maybe to use a little more basement. But right, I was. I mean, I wouldn't have. It was a two-story window, but still, that was like you know. You got the right. So that was truly amazing, because once we'd exposed those, the people on the platform were looking down on the corner of the kitchen or a large part of the kitchen, which we've exposed more of, um, where Washington's enslaved chef Hercules had worked probably where Martha Washington's personal body servant and seamstress, Oni Judge, slept. We believe she slept on the second floor um, in the children's bedroom. We're not certain, but that's the most likely place. Just a few feet was this bow window that Washington had ordered added to the house, which became very sort of symbolically important in his presidency initially. It's sort of hard to realize now, but while the institution of the 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 presidency is written into the constitution its duties are clearly stated but none of the protocol is ever mentioned hmm. but washington kind of wanted it to have dignity but to be clearly set apart from the the crowned heads of in europe right he used that great big bow window as a symbolic space he would greet visitors to the president's house that's foreign diplomats native american delegations and he would have these uh, weekly uh, open houses so to speak sure. but he would do that where he would be standing in that great big bow window with his back to the window mm-hmm. and the people in front of him so it's this you know it's symbolic it's like really exactly yeah. mm-hmm. it's a place where he's inventing the the institution of the american presidency right. and just a few feet away is a place where uh, the people he's enslaved are working and living. The kitchen, then, is the area that we're talking about where the enslaved people were working. They were living in that area as well? Or? So it's not well documented, really, mm-hmm. um, where exactly everybody was living. We know that before he, Washington moved to Philadelphia, as he was preparing to, he wrote, he said he had an extensive correspondence with his secretary who was sent ahead, a man named Tobias Lear. Once they settle on the former Robert Morris house, Washington, knowing it, wrote back, well, I guess it's the best available house for me. But he wanted things changed. He wanted that bow window built Mm -hmm. and a number of other things. Uh, There was a small smokehouse and probably a shed, Mm -hmm. probably a woodshed. But he asked Tobias Lears to take that smokehouse and the shed and make them into quarters, he said, Mm -hmm. for um, the stable people. They were all enslaved people he brought from Mount Vernon. And it's been labeled slave quarters, and it's marked on the site as a slave quarters. But only a few, a minority of the enslaved would have lived there, uh, slept there. Others would have slept elsewhere. Usually they would sleep near where they worked. So we think Oni Judge slept above the kitchen because that was where the Washingtons had their bedroom, and they had a children's bedroom for the grandchildren. Right. We think she would have slept in the grandchildren's bedroom to be to take care uh, of them, take care of them, and call she was for, like Martha Washington's sort right of personal. She was her yes, right. exactly. Um, and we think some of the other enslaved people would have slept in the upper stories of the main house, right. as well as some of the um, paid or indentured people who worked in the house. I imagine this would have been a big sort of downgrade in size for Washington coming from Mount Vernon, right? He thought it was, as he said, is the best available house. It was a grand um, urban townhouse. It was originally built for Mary Masters, who was the widow at that point 
of one of the mayors of Philadelphia. He was uh, very wealthy, probably almost certainly the biggest slaveholder in Philadelphia when he served. Sure. And so she had this grand house built, never lived in it. She actually gave it to her daughter, who was married to William Penn's grandson. Oh. Uh, no, son. I think it's one of the sons. Yeah, you know. One of them. Yes. The reprobate. Yes. Yeah. I should remember, of course. But, but they have to move out because he's a loyalist. And right. at right. the outbreak of the war, it becomes uncomfortable. And in fact, he carries the, the famous so-called Olive Branch petition, which is a petition that people with loyalist sentiments sort of circulated and and, um, as a way to try and head off last minute attempt to head off an open break with the mother country. And it was carried by this woman's daughter and her son-in-law to England and presented uh, there and and rejected, of course. Mm -hmm. So they couldn't come back because they were loyalists. (laughs) So so their house was sealed as, seized rather, you know, during the revolution because it it was loyalist property. Right, Um, right. And so at one point, the French trade minister lives there briefly. Two generals lived there during the war. You know, um, both General Howe and Benedict Arnold lived there. Oh, whoa. In fact, Benedict Arnold probably probably hatches his his treasonous plot while living in that house, huh. um, almost certainly. Amazing. Um, and then it becomes available as the president's house. Right. And one of the interesting things in telling things about the origins of this country is that that house is almost certainly built by enslaved people. In fact, we have pretty good evidence that the later bow window was, but probably almost certainly there were enslaved people working on the original house. Every owner of that house, except maybe that French attache, through George Washington, were slaveholders. Right. And the White House itself in Washington, D.C., of course, as well. Visitors, you know, who flocked to the site while we were there, some of them knew we were digging and came Mm because of the media. A lot of them were just visitors to the park, would come up on the platform. We would talk to them about what we were doing and and about these stories that I'm telling you. Yeah. And about the history of, you know, the enslaved. And it allowed us to connect people with a, a part of our history that we've, suppressed in many ways, um, a history of racism and, and in slavery. And, you know, it sort of makes the point that we, you know, famously Lincoln said we're a nation conceived in liberty, mm. uh, much later, of course, but, mm-hmm. and that, and he's quite right about that. Right. But we're also at the same time a nation built on slavery. Yes, literally. That's literally built on slavery. And that is a part that we have not traditionally acknowledged. Yes. And in fact, the truth is that slavery and freedom are intertwined inextricably in our history from the very beginning. And tragically, to some extent, our liberty is built on the labor and exploitation of the enslaved. Yeah. We were able to connect people with that in a way that was laid out in front of them mm-hmm. in bricks and mortar. Yeah, it's so much more tangible. It's easy to think about it as a concept and then dismiss it or That's sideline right. it or be in denial. Right. But when you see right. this tangible evidence right. and you can touch it and you right. can, you know, you, you can walk on it, you know, and really understand exactly. what it was like. And I think that's one of the values of archaeology. So in this case, they're looking down on what we had to explain in some ways, because it's dusty bricks and mortar and um, dirt, um, but it's laid out there and you and you can point, say, that's a kitchen, you can show people where it was mm-hmm. um, and say, 
Washington's enslaved chef worked in that kitchen. Right. And this and you bow can window. Name it, which is right. amazing. And then yeah. we could tell the story about Oni Judge. Yes. Oni Judge actually escaped to freedom from that house. Now, Oni Judge was a, at that point a young woman, probably about 22 years old. Her parents were mixed race. Her mother enslaved, her father an English indentured servant. And she served as seamstress and body servant to Martha mm-hmm. Washington. And she came to Philadelphia because she was indispensable in the household, lived there. She also took the opportunity of being in Philadelphia to escape to freedom. She very carefully planned her escape, smuggled her personal belongings out of the house in a trunk to the household of a sympathetic person. And then when the Washingtons were at dinner, she slipped out of the house, disappeared. She was hidden for a period of time until they could find a sympathetic sea cap in the harbor that was ready to depart. They smuggled her on the ship and um, she went, you know, via that vessel to um, Portsmouth, Rhode Island. Um, Now you think she was free and that's the end Mm -hmm. of the story, but it is not. Soon after she got there, she was recognized on the streets of Portsmouth by a woman who was friends of the Washingtons (laughs) and therefore had known her and the woman saw her and looked around for the Washingtons, didn't see them, and stopped Oni and said, where are the Washingtons? You know, mm-hmm. what are you doing here? And Oni said that she had run away because she wanted her freedom. And the woman said, well, what are the Washingtons going to do without you? You know, and she, and she said, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, know. Yeah. I, know. I know. So mm-hmm. she wrote to the, uh, this woman, um, right, right. then wrote to Washington, mm-hmm. uh, actually, to, I believe to Martha, wrote to the Washingtons and said she'd seen Oni here mm. at Portsmouth. This is making me think of those memes now of like white women who call the cops on black people. You know the ones I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. It's like Patty who just, Right, right. What is it? It's like barbecue Betty. Yeah, barbecue <laughs> Betty. And barbecue and Betty. Betty and Becky, Becky and there's one with Becky. a swimming pool. Right, yeah. right. Like I saw a black yeah, person. Yeah, obviously. Think, right. So the Washingtons, Martha's like, get her back. Yeah. Basically, she's insistent Washington, you know, is not adverse. Right. So he writes to the keeper of customs in Portsmouth. Now, this is a federal employee, somebody who works for him as president. Mm-hmm. He writes to him and says, get her back any way you can, basically. Mm-hmm. Now, Washington is breaking the law when he does that because he, Washington, signed into law the first Fugitive Slave Act. In that very house, in the president's house. (laughs) Now, that did give him the right as a slaveholder to recover his property. But it set out a legal framework to do it by. Uh, So you can't just send a bounty hunter. That's right. right. You had to apply to a federal magistrate and get a ruling. He did not want the adverse publicity he knew would result. Wow. So he told this person who worked for him, yeah, get her back. So this guy calls Oni in on a pretext. He's like, I want to hire, maybe hire you to take care of my kids. Right, you know? right. So she comes in and he talks to her. We don't know the exact details, but pretty quickly the pretext falls away. The Washingtons had said, look, get her back. They said she didn't, like, she didn't run away voluntarily. She was seduced away by a Frenchman. Of course. Yes. <laughs> There's <laughs> always a Frenchman. <laughs> always, <laughs> always, always. <laughs> So it's like, yeah, she was seduced away by a Frenchman. She didn't know what she was doing, you know. Oh, my God. So the keeper then, when the facade falls away and it's like, yeah, no, that's not what this is about. It's pretty clear. He says, like, were you you seduced away by a Frenchman? You know, he asks her the circumstances of how. And she said, no, I did it on my own because I wanted my freedom. I wanted to learn to read and write. 
And he's like, oh. Well, that's not what they told me. It's <laughs> a different story. Yeah. So he's like, he talks to her more and she says, I'll go back. I will go back to them if they agree in writing to free me when they die. Mm. Because she had been told by my Martha that she, Oni, was going to be given away as a, a wedding gift to one of the Washington's granddaughters. Oh my God. And so he thinks, presumably, oh, He's no problem. Oh, I'm like, I'm at, I mean, you know, we're all off the hook. He writes back, oh, she wasn't seduced away, but she'll come back under these circumstances. <laughs> what do you think Washington's response is? Well. You fool. Yeah, well, I think he was like, absolutely not, right? Yeah. He was absolutely not. He said, I will not negotiate. Yeah. It sets a bad precedent, bad example. So Washington basically gives instructions to, to get her back one way or another. And this person, he's, he writes back, says, I can't do it. There'll be riots right. here. Yeah. You can't and just he, kidnap her. I, I right. just can't do it. Uh-huh. It's legal. You know, well, it isn't legal under that, but he didn't raise that. He just said, I can't do it. Right. And it sort of peters out at that point. So you think it's over. But a couple years later, Washington's nephew says, I, you know, hey, I'm going up to visit the former, I think it was at that point, former governor of Rhode Island. You know, and up there, I'll grab Oni and bring her back. Oh, my God. And so we'll run this errand, right? This, yeah, yeah this little you're still looking for, you. for her. Yeah, you right. I'll, I'll bring her back. Uh-huh. Um, so he goes up there, and he's the story is that he's having dinner with this family, the the, the former or current governor. Again, I don't remember the exact. Um, and he he tells them, "Yeah, I'm going to do this." What's passed down to us is that his host excuses himself, has a servant send a message to mm. Oni, <laughs> and say, "Get." Get the hell out Get of Dodge. Get the hell out of Dodge. The point is she had children at that point. Yes. After she arrived in Portsmouth, she subsequently married a sailor, an African-American sailor, Jack Staines, while in Portsmouth in a free state. Free African-American yeah. community. But she was still legally enslaved. Right. And escaped. According to the rules of the time, all of her offspring are owned by her owner. Right. So that her daughter actually still um, legally um, the property of the, the property of right. you know I struggle not to say those I words know, but, but it's like on paper but, but on the other hand I think we should say it because the stark ugliness of it right. shouldn't yeah. reflect on the people who had no choice in the matter mm-hmm. but should reflect on those who chose to own other human beings yes. her daughter just not just herself but her daughter was at risk of being kidnapped and mm-hmm. brought back in which case the law would have upheld the capture even though it was done illegal almost certainly mm-hmm. especially by the president mm-hmm. but she did escape they weren't captured he came back empty handed thank goodness now you think again that would end the story but that isn't the case. We know uh, a little bit about the rest of Oni's life. Usually enslaved people, their lives are completely, almost completely hidden. Mm-hmm. We may learn about them from the material culture and archaeology, right. but it's it's even in that regard somewhat yeah. impersonal. They don't often have a name, yes. even though we can personally you get closer to them through their objects and what they say about their lives, but we, we can't give them a name. We mm-hmm. can't speak their name. And, and, but in her case, we can because she was enslaved by the, the president. Yes, right. exactly. <laughs> so we know a lot about her story only because of that. Mm-hmm. In the mid-19th century, 1847, thereabouts, um, she's interviewed twice by abolitionists. And they publish articles about her in abolitionist journals. They do it 
and this is somewhat misunderstood today, not to sort of take Washington down off his pedestal because they idolized him, right? Mm-hmm. the abolitionists particularly, but because for them, nothing made the case of the evils of slavery so much as that this sainted man was tainted by this institution. Yeah. To them, it didn't really touch him so much as to make the case about how evil it was, that it could even compromise this sainted figure. Right. So she, Oni, was a very powerful figure. Now, what we know is from what they write about her, we don't hear her own voice, mm-hmm. but what they say is fascinating. First of all, they tell us a little bit about her escape. And one of the fascinating things is she talks about, uh, yes, I took my things, I smuggled them out of the house. She would not name the people. Mm-hmm. Even uh, after all that Even time. after all the year. They, you know, they were probably dead, but if they weren't, they broke the law mm-hmm. by helping her escape. And unlike the president who broke the law, they would have faced jeopardy. So she wouldn't give their names. And she, this, is, this is 40, 50 years yes. after this happened. Yes, they were probably dead, but... And, you know, my interpret she didn't say that, but my interpretation is she would not speak their name and compromise them. She did give the name of the sea captain, mm. presumably because based on his age, he had to be dead. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I think she wanted to acknowledge it. She was asked in, the, in one of these interviews, a question that people asked us when they visited on the platform in, in one form or another. They're like, well, she lived with the Washington. So, I mean, this must have been, even for an enslaved person, pretty right. good condition. And you get so, nice dresses. Yeah, yeah, nice dresses, good food. <laughs> and they abolitionists asked her because they looked at where she was. She was living in dire poverty at that point in her old age. She had been a washerwoman. Uh, her husband had died, and she was a washerwoman. Which is uh, such a hard... I remember I read very, a little about 19th century washerwomen, right. and it was just a horrible profession from yes. our modern outlook. Absolutely. It's just drudgery. Right. And, you, you and know, hard work. Elbow deep and lie, yeah. and you're scrubbing clothes all day, every day. If we find burials, if it's a washerwoman... You can see the sometimes arthritic conditions, but also the muscular attachments are massive mm. because they had to mm. um, vigorous and lift right, and all right. of these. Sorts so it was of things. very hard work. Out west, and paid or, nothing. Right out west, I know a lot of women turned to sex yes, work that's because right. it, it paid more much, and it was easier. Right, right, and yeah. less objectionable. That's right. Yeah. Um, so she had a very hard life. Mm-hmm. Um, in the interview, she's asked the gist of it. You know, was you lived in one of the finest houses in Philadelphia? Not to mention. Mount Vernon, you had fine food, fine clothes. Um, now, look at you, you're living in poverty. Do you regret that you ran away? Mm. She said, no, because I got my freedom. I got my freedom. I'm free as God intended, yeah. is the way mm-hmm. she understood her experience. That's the last we know of Oni. I, I learned Oni's story through an episode of Drunk History, actually. Yes, I know the episode. <laughs> Which, yeah, yes, it's an I amazing... It, yes. it's, I think it's the same episode as the Nikola Tesla one, which is the reason why yeah. I watched it. Uh, but in the episode, you know, the grad student who's yes. telling the story starts crying. Yes. And, and it makes me want to cry, too, yes. because it's such yes. it's such an emotional yeah. story. And there's the story itself. And right. then there's the resonance yes. with us as Americans yes. for, Absolutely. you know... You can be so proud of the country, right. but you also have to acknowledge all of this pain. Right. And and it's hard to hold that in our head. And I right. understand at some level why so many people don't want to hold it right. in their head and are angry right. when confronted by yes. it. You know, everything I've told you and more, we told people 
who came up on the platform. We'd explain what they were looking at, you know, we were explaining it as the discoveries were made there. So it was for people, it was sort of viscerally exciting and real because here you're there at the moment of discovery. You're looking down into this pit and seeing this and hearing these amazing and wrenching stories. And we had all kinds of reactions. By the time the project was over, we had about over a quarter of a million people visit on the platform. Mm -hmm. The archaeologists always were the one who talked to the public. We had some volunteer archaeologists. We had, you know, I spoke personally to tens of thousands of people every day when I was up there. And and other, Patty, my wife, was uh, volunteered and was up there as well. And we had the crew. And so they would hear bits of these stories and we would get these reactions. People would get angry. A lot of people got really angry. Mm -hmm. Some of the people were angry. Why didn't I know this story? Why was this hidden? And other people would get angry. You're besmirching the president. Why are you doing this? Um, Very few people were like unaffected by it. But very few people were able to maintain a level of denial. Some try it because you're looking down. Right. It happened here, and what you're seeing is this, these, these dirty bricks and, and mortared stones. That no doubt that they're old yeah. and real, yeah. and they anchor the stories to this place. And I think it has this psychological effect of making it harder for people to push away what they may not want to face. Mm-hmm. It kind of makes people, in a way, more receptive. I also think the sort of drama, the theater of being there at the moment of discovery has that same function because, I need not tell you, theater can open people up to experiences that otherwise they may be, you know, reluctant to. to. Right, exactly. It Mm -hmm. has the way to kind of... So I think there's a performative aspect of archaeology that functions here. All of that factored in, and so there was this just incredible experience of being on that platform Americans don't talk about certainly didn't um, in the past and until recently and even still today are reluctant to talk about race yeah openly maybe well family and close friends but even then but not in sort of just thrown together social situations and in fact for confronting race and racism um, is hard I think as a white person it's it's shameful for me to say that because it's hard for me. Right. Yeah. On one level, I had to get up there and some days I would wake up and I would go, I just, I don't think I can do this. Mm. And especially in the beginning, it was like, why is this hard? You yeah. know, why is it hard for me to do this? And I would just say to my, I just got to do it. Right. And you'd get up there and I was like, I'm not going to hold back. I'm, not, I'm just going to do it. And once you started, you know, you just sort of allowed yourself I'm just going to say, this is racism, you know, the, the, the fruits of racism we're mm-hmm. looking at. Right. Once you do it, it's not as hard. Sure. Though the next day, it might be hard you again to, to get again, started. Right. Yeah. And then I can only think about people who have a more direct connection to this racist part of our history, who know that generations of their family, how hard is it for them, and yet many of the African-American people who you know, visit on the platform would talk to us openly, you know, very, you know, about racism and how it affected them in their history. And again, for me, it was, I was always a bit ashamed that I, that I would have to say, I find this difficult. Yeah. But it was an amazing experience to have this dialogue about things we don't talk about and to have people literally yell at us, you know, again, either because we hid this or because right. we're unhiding it. Right. Mm-hmm. We had people cry. Right. So it was an amazing experience. And, 
we had people in other cultural interest, historical cultural institutions come up in the platform and say, you can't do this. What? You can't, you're going to get. What were they afraid of? They said, the public's not going to accept this. Huh. And I thought they were right mm. in one level. I, um, when I started, I said, the park's going to let us do this for a week or two. And then they're going to shut you down. Then they're going to shut me down. Wow. But I said, we're going to do it anyway, and we're not going to hold back, and it'll be what it will be. And how long did this all go on They for? never stopped me. So, so how long did the dig happen for? So we uh, originally supposed to be for a, a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would get out in time to close the site up, clear it up for July 4th, and we're getting close to the crowds grew and grew and grew. A lot of publicity. We're getting close to July 4th. The superintendent calls me in says, well, are you going to be done when you said? And I said, yeah, I promised you I will get done. We'll add extra people. We'll get done. And he gets this funny look, and he gets sort of hesitant. He says, um, could you, could you dig slower? <laughs> and I was, like, floored. I have never had a manager ever, ever in all my years in archaeology say that. And I was like, what? And he said, well, could you keep it open over July 4th? Wow. And he said, well, we think it's great. The public's interested. The tourist community has found this really something the public is interested in. They want it open. Yeah. Um, And we do too. (laughs) And I was like, okay, sure. We'll dig slower. Um, I'm sure we could try that. I could have told them this. Like, you know, this is... Is this, but only because, you know, of the excitement that we've had with learning these stories and uncovering stuff and this kind of urban archaeology. And one of the reasons why we even created this podcast is because I'm so freaking excited about this stuff and I want other people to be excited about it. And And the public is when they, I mean, it's been my career experience that managers don't understand. After a number of years in the park service, I developed this theory that there's a secret undisclosed location, maybe in West Virginia. I'm not sure exactly where it is, where (laughs) at a certain point in park service managers' career, they take them probably against their will, whether they want or not there, and they indoctrinate them that archaeology is bad. The public really isn't interested in it. You got to watch out for archaeology. That part may be true, but you got to watch out for archaeologists. And they just get it. because my experience was always they're so very reluctant. I mean, there are some good reasons for it. It's about mm-hmm. the unknown. There's a it's expense, you know. Right. But it's so extreme, and they won't like. I'm like, no, the public will love this. Right. You know, this is it's how like, you don't try people. and hide it. If you have to do the archaeology. Do it as public the people will love it. Right. They're like, really? And the other thing is they never believe you. You tell them, we're doing this because we think we can find this, why, right. this, this, and that. And every time they're amazed the public is interested, like, <laughs> I told you that. Right. And second of all, they're amazed we find what we find. It's like, I told you that right. was going to be there. Right. You, you read the, the memo, literally, that says we, we need to dig because there's the evidence is this will be... It's not always exactly, but, you know, right. you shouldn't be shocked. Sure. And then the next time, they're also, oh, no, archaeology, no, no, no. So I have that theory. Yeah, but, I mean... So I don't... I mean, and I experienced the other side of it, the public. I mean, I had these cases where we were doing really boring archaeology and all these Park Service site, and all these, archae- uh, these visitors came up, and there's all these German tourists, mm-hmm. and we're... The screens the and there's and nothing there and and you what is that it's a, it's a rock 
Oh, what's that? It's a rock. So we were fine with nothing. And I'm jaded and they're like super excited. Yeah, okay. Because you know? we've had this experience so many times with the archaeologists we talk to where they seem like pretty jaded yeah. about stuff. Yeah. And we're like, no, that's yeah, the coolest pr- thing ever. And well, even just at, I've had just this microcosm of this whole thing in my own head because right. we're newcomers to this whole right. thing and uh, they're digging in the West Ship yard near right, us. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't know if people will show up for that. I personally find right. it exciting. Right. But it's like, I don't know. I don't really know. And then a whole lot of people yeah, show up. Dozens and yeah, dozens of people. Of two, to two separate visits. So yeah. And yeah. Uh, we're there and there's the trench that they have dug up and right. filled back in. And Melissa's walking around and she's just finding pipe stems yeah. in the fill dirt. Right, right. <laughs> and she's like, <gasps> and other yeah. people are like, this is amazing. Yeah. And of course, everybody's seen a pipe stem. Like anybody right. who's in the field right. has seen a pipe stem. It's not terribly exciting right. because right. whatever. But I woke up to an archaeologist. I'm like, I found another pipe right. stem. Do you want it? They're like, eh. Yeah, and that's, <laughs> I, 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 that's also because for archaeologists, of course, it's not the object, it's the context. It's the yes. yeah. So what you're finding is in displaced context, you know, disturbed fills. Right. So archaeologically, objects like that have minimal or no value, except in very specific cases. Right. An archaeologist once put it this way, you know, archaeology is not about what you find, it's about what you find out. Yes. Yes. Exactly. So, now, I think many of my colleagues take it too far and they pretend they, they're not interested in the objects at all. No, I think sure. they're freaking cool. But... Also, I understand the real value is in their context, yes. which is why archaeologists get weird about people doing their own archaeology, yes. right. because we're not just interested in the neat stuff, which is neat stuff, but we're interested in the entire structure of the site, the soil colors and textures, yeah. where this was found relative to this, what pollen grains we might uh-huh. you know extract and learn seeds from that you seeds find and- um, <laughs> microscopic egg casings from human intestinal parasites ah. uh, one of my personal favorites amazing um, and putting all putting all that information all together with historic documents is when you really maximize the value yeah a site that's just dug mm-hmm. for the objects loses that sure so that's sort of why simultaneously why that object just in that trench right. isn't exciting to archaeologists although and, for me so obviously you know we come at this as amateurs and right. we're like but we're like the stuff is cool and then i guess we have enough of a background in loving learning right. that it sent us down this exactly. historical rabbit hole yeah. but even an object divorced of its context like a little pipe right. stem can be Absolutely. emotionally or intellectually stimulating yes. enough to someone Absolutely. who's never seen one. Of course it can. To and, go, and right, and there's nothing this? wrong with that. Exactly. No. And to, like, all of our objects, you know, people are like, oh, the Bonin and Morris, it might be worth some money. And I'm like, that's not what's right. cool about it. What's cool about it is that this sent me down this exactly. rabbit hole, yeah. um, which I probably, you know, I might have had a passing history, interest in the history of our building, but not to the extent of right. doing full biographical studies exactly. of the guy who owned yeah. this particular yeah. stuff and then learning yeah, about absolutely. all the ceramics. And like, that's what's cool about it. And that was, there was a lady at the West Shipyard dig who I gave that pipe stem to because I was like, right. I have pipe stems. It's not my pipe stem. It's fine. Yeah. And she was like, can I have that? 
and she cradled it like it was you right. know, a gem. I know it's worthless, right. you know? right. but she right. was like, this is so Absolutely. cool. Yeah. She was like, where is this from? What is this about? Right. I'm like, well, it was probably right. made in the Netherlands. Right. You can look up all of these sites online right. if you're interested and this history right. of pipe smoking absolutely. and yep, how this happens. Exactly. And she might go down that path. Yeah, absolutely. No, there's no doubt about that. And colleagues who are in, in um, material culture studies, right. they proceed just from the object. And it may be from a museum collection or a heirloom object, not necessarily, or even excavated. But, you know, so they're really object oriented and they're following out those connections mm-hmm. on objects that often don't have, you know, what we call provenience provenance. Yes. You can't be linked, but still can, you know, reveal things. So that's absolutely true. I know you've heard this from archaeologists. They're really weird about people digging stuff up. Yeah. Because while you can learn, you're also destroying that bigger picture. I'll make this one other point, which um, I think is interesting. You know, archaeology actually goes back as a practice for a very long time. I think that archaeology is, in general, and I think it's particularly true of historical archaeology, is very attuned to sort of modern ways of understanding and learning because it's sort of, it's all hyperlinked, you Mm. know? It's like following a link from this to that to the other thing. Some cases willy-nilly, like going to a website, find, what is this? And find, and then you land up somewhere totally different and tangential. And, and, you know, in some ways it can be the enemy of focused study. Yes. (laughs) But in the other, it can lead you to, you serendipitously to all these, you know, really new insights. Right. So I think it's sort of very modern in that regard, even though it's not a modern practice, but that's a sort of a, you know, just an aside. Well, I think it's the coolest thing. Um, Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. For talking to us. This has been such a fascinating conversation. I'm so thrilled that we got to have this conversation on tape. And I'm so looking forward to like all of the stories that we're uncovering and that you're uncovering, all of the histories that get lost if you just read secondary source textbooks and things, but are recovered mm-hmm. and rediscovered and republicized right. because of archaeology. Yeah, and I could go on for hours more, so yeah. uh, I won't, <laughs> but I promise. But just to sort of end, you know, with a kind of a connection to today, Yeah, I think archaeology can certainly help us understand the present and shape the future. But it also, and I think this is, you know, a really partially untapped potential, it can really build communities. Mm. It can help people connect with a place, a city, in a way that's much deeper and more meaningful and and supplies something that we really don't have all too often and, and that is really connecting people with each other in a community in the present. What you've done is an example of that. While it's sort of the personal history of your house, it's also community history. It's neighborhood history. Yes. It gives people a, a deeper connection to the place they live, the, the city, but also just the, the three blocks around their house. Right. Yeah. That's the whole point, you know, of what we're doing. And my favorite thing to hear from listeners of the podcast is when they say, you know, I'm not from Philadelphia, but right. I started thinking yeah. about the history of my house right. because of how cool your historical yeah. story is. So, you know, I started, I went to the library right. and I looked up the history of my house and look how cool this stuff yeah. is. And and I'm like, yes, we should all be thinking about this. because And it can bring people together too yes. across, you know, in a community who don't otherwise have a lot in common if they start, you know, especially in active archaeological dig. We mm-hmm. saw that the president's house, people would come up and they would start talking to each other. Yeah. Yes. 
they would dialogue about, in that case, about race and stuff like that across, you know, people who never, ever would have. I mean, in our case, because it was in a national park where people come from all over, it's sort of the DMV effect where you get, sure. you know, you get people from all walks of life who never really cross. Yeah. But almost as much as the DNV, people of all walks come to park service, National Park Service sites. And people made friendships across, yeah. you know, we saw it happen because they would come back and back again and they would see each other and they would chat and they'd, let's get lunch. That's you know, I'll just say this final, and yeah. I keep saying it's a final thing. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, well into the day, I was at a meeting, I was called to a meeting at City Hall about the project. And at the end of the day, I was walking back from City Hall down Market Street. And when I got within two blocks of the, the site, I could see the platform on Market Street and there were people sitting up on the railing of the platform and on the steps that looked like a stoop because mm-hmm. it was made like a patio yeah. kind of um, and, I, and it used to like hit me you know that archaeological site had become like Philadelphia's front porch yeah where kind of neighbors had sort of would gather and talk and you know eat the lunch and, and eat the lunch and people did they came on their lunch hour sometimes with their sandwich or the ch- I you definitely know. came on my lunch hour yeah there you work. go yeah so it, it offers that kind of you know which is a, a really valuable thing because it's what we don't have um, enough of which is a sense of community of connecting people that's awesome archaeology forever <laughs> I'm Matt Dunphy. And I'm Melissa Dunphy. And you've been listening to The Bog House. You can find out more about our show at boghouse.thehanna.org. The Bog House is recorded at the Hannah Callow Hill stage in Philadelphia. Our theme music is by Up Your Cherry. Thanks to our audio assistant, Kate, and our research assistant, Clarice. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us if you like what you hear.